look at Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. As you're turning there, let me just bring you up to speed. Uh, a lame man was sitting at the temple. Peter and John came and they commanded him to rise to get up and walk. And indeed he did. All the people ran towards what had happened because they wanted to see this great miracle. Peter seized the opportunity to preach the Gospel uh, to tell them that they had crucified Christ, but if they would repent, uh, forgiveness would come, times of refreshing would come. Um, the leaders, the religious leaders heard about this. They were not very happy. They had Peter, John, probably the lame man arrested. Um, the next day, Peter and John appeared before these religious leaders. And 13 begins it right in the middle of that episode. Now when they, the religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the insight that it gives. We thank You for how it challenges us. Father, thank You for the example of Peter and John and their boldness. And Father, thank You that the Holy Spirit who empowered them is the same Holy Spirit who resides within us and it can empower us to be just as bold. Father, speak to us. Empower us. For the only way we can live bold, courageous Christian lives is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, The Kingdom and the Power, Peter Lightheart makes this astute observation about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He writes, In the Bible, when the Spirit descends, someone usually gets hurt. And then he gives a few examples. He says, When the Spirit came upon Jephthah, he defeated the Ammonites. When the Spirit of power came upon Samson, he went out and killed someone or something. A lion. 30 men of Escalon, or 30,000 men with a donkey's jawbone. When the Spirit came upon King Saul, he gathered the people and slaughtered the armies of Nahash, the Ammonite. Jesus received the Spirit at His baptism immediately before entering into combat with Satan. 
Jesus was not anointed with the Spirit of God so that He could retreat to the mountains or so that He could sense God's presence. The Spirit was given to empower Him for combat. Lightheart goes on and he says, We have received the same Spirit and for the same reason. To empower us to fulfill the mission as God has given us. The Spirit was not poured out so that the saints could experience warm fuzzies or so that they could feel so good. He was and is given to empower God's people for holy war. The Spirit was poured out once for all at Pentecost. But He continues to come to us every Lord's Day. As God's people are filled with the Spirit each week in the worship of the sanctuary, they're restored after the image of Jesus Christ and empowered to holy war with spiritual weapons. I think that is a great reminder. God has given us the Holy Spirit because Jesus Christ has given us a mission. And we have a mission, and we have a mission that we have to take to a hostile world. And if you don't think that unbelievers are hostile to the Gospel, then just try, for example, inviting them to church next Sunday. When you go to work Monday morning, uh, ask if they would like to come to church. Um, talk to your neighbors. Ask if they would like to join you in church next Sunday and see what kind of response you get. And if you're feeling real courageous, begin to talk to them about their need for a Savior. And see if that doesn't bring to the surface some hostility. Uh, many of you are smiling, and you know why you're smiling, because you know what happens. You've had this experience before. You just begin to mention the name Jesus. You just begin to talk about the Christian life. And you can see bubbling up to the surface that hostility. And you know, if you continue on this track, there's going to be a war that's about to take place. And that's because we really are at war. We just often know that we have to keep it at a simmer. Otherwise, it's going to be hand-to-hand combat. We really are involved in a war. Well, Peter and John are not backing down. Uh, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, exhibits an uncommon boldness. And we saw in verse 10 that for the third time, he tells the Jewish people that they are guilty for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That takes a lot of guts. He tells them, you have crucified Jesus Christ. And he is very clear in proclaiming that the healing of the lame man has taken place in the name of Jesus. And then he continues on in Acts 4.11. And he tells the people that Psalm 118.22 is fulfilled by them. They are the religious leaders, the ones who rejected the very stone that God has now used to be the cornerstone of the new building, the new temple, the church. Peter isn't done. He goes on verse 12 and he tells them that there is salvation and no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
He makes it very clear. If you want to be saved, you have only one hope. There's only one road to heaven. And that road is Jesus Christ. Well, we pick up the story from there. And we're told in verse 13 that when the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. I think they were flabbergasted. I think they expected Peter and John to cower in intimidation. Uh, this council is also known as the Sanhedrin. It's made up of the top religious officials of the day. Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And just imagine being called in to the highest religious leaders of the day. They're seated with all their garments. Peter and John are before them. And I thought the very sight of this council would have been enough to intimidate Peter and John. I think the religious leaders were thinking, these guys are going to be scared to death. They are not scared to death. We're told specifically that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, he is renewed with power just for this occasion. And he speaks boldly. And when the religious leaders see this, I think they take a step back and they are absolutely astonished that Peter would be so bold before this group. Now, why are they astonished? Two things very clearly. Number one, because of the boldness that we mentioned. Number two, I think because of the eloquence of Peter and John. They perceive that they are uneducated, common men. And yet, these uneducated, common men who are standing on trial are arguing with such force and such logic that the religious leaders have nothing to say. And let's remember that this is the fulfillment of John's promise that he gave to his disciples. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Luke 21, where we see this promise. Luke 21, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. Jesus is speaking to His disciples and He says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for My name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And that's exactly what's happening on this occasion. God has given them the words and the religious leaders have nothing to say in response. Verse 16 says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. That I find fascinating. They will be arrested, put in prison, uh, which is an opportunity <laughs> to bear witness. And they will be given the words to speak even though they may on occasion and they were on different occasions put to death. And we mentioned last week uh, that Peter and John had no idea how this may have turned out. Jesus had warned them that they would be persecuted and Peter was told specifically how he would be a martyr. So they had no idea what the outcome would be. Um, I think perhaps they even thought that this was their only opportunity to testify concerning Christ because they might be executed by this council just like Jesus was executed. But regardless, they're coming before the council 
And they are very bold, very clear about salvation and the guiltiness of the religious leaders. Verse 14 says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So Peter and John are there, and the healed man is standing right there beside them. Perhaps he was rested as well. But he's right there. And remember, there's a gallery out there as well. People are watching all this take place. And the lame man is standing right there. What are they going to say? Stop healing cripples. No more miracles. <laughs> there would have been a revolt. What, what could they say? The healed man standing right there. They could not respond, respond to Peter and John. They had nothing to say. Verse 15, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they have... Peter and John, the lame man, perhaps other people step out and they meet together in private and they want to talk this over. We have a situation on our hands. What are we going to do about this? So they conferred together, verse 16, saying, What shall we do with this men? Or excuse me, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. This demonstrates the wickedness of the human heart. Notice they're gathering together in private. Nobody else is listening in on their conversation. And they're saying to one another, Hey, this man who has been lame for over 40 years has been healed. Everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. There's nothing that we can say. Notice that they don't join in the celebration. They don't join the apostles. They don't join the crowd. They don't join the lame man. They don't say to one another, isn't this wonderful what God is doing? We need to consider what God is doing in our midst. Let's talk about this. Could this really be the Messiah that we rejected? None of that. They admit it. This is a miracle by God through the hands of the apostles. And because of that, they have a problem. They don't join in the celebration at all. Why? They're not happy. Because all they care about is their standing in this community under Roman rule. And if this religious thing concerning Jesus Christ gets out of it, they're going to lose their power and their place and their prestige. And that's all they care about. They could care less about that lame man who can finally walk. They have absolutely zero compassion. And they have absolutely zero interest in Jesus Christ and what He is doing in healing people. Why? Because they are just envious of what is taking place. They're envious that all the people are excited about what the apostles are doing. And let's remember that envy is very powerful. Pontius Pilate, while a coward, was not a foolish man. And we're told that he perceived that it was out of envy that the religious leaders handed him over to him to be executed. They knew. They're just envious of Jesus. Because all the people are clamoring over to Jesus and, and leaving them. They knew that it was out of envy. Beware of envy. Envy is very powerful. In Romans 12:15, Paul says, 
Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And I mentioned this in Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago, but it is a lot easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. If you go through a difficult time, if you're having pain, uh, God's people are generally pretty compassionate. They will come alongside you. But when someone gets promoted, uh, when someone moves into their dream house, oftentimes it's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because you wanted that promotion. You wanted to move into that new house. Why is it hard to rejoice with those who rejoice? Because the truth is, you might be a little envious of what they have. And it's not always easy to rejoice with those who rejoice. And here we have the religious leaders. Absolutely no joy. And you think it would be so easy to join right in, but they can't. Because they're self-centered. They're occupied with themselves, so they can't join in at all. Instead, they just see this is a problem. They think this is a tragedy. Look at this. We had Jesus, and, and now we have the apostles walking through Jerusalem healing people. Today, a lame man. What's it going to be tomorrow? A blind man? This is terrible. we got to stop this. this. This is absolutely terrible what's happening in our city. That's what they're saying. You see how wicked that is? Absolutely no compassion for people who are hurting because they're self-centered to the very core. So what conclusion does this council come to? Verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Isn't that something? They can't even verbalize the name Jesus. No more speaking in this name. It, it seems they don't even want to say His name out loud. Other passages interpret this. They, they threaten them. Let's threaten them. Speaking no more in, in this name. So the apostles are arrested. The religious leaders are all upset. And what is their great crime? Healing in the name of Jesus. And they got to stop it. No more of this. We've got to call them in. So sure enough, they do. They call them in and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. No speaking, no teaching, no preaching, no ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. Knock it off, guys. Now, the name of Muhammad is okay. The name of Buddha is okay. The name of Confucius is okay. The name of Oprah Winfrey is okay. The name of paganism is okay. Wiccan is okay. Satanism is okay. But no speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Does this sound like any cultures you may be vaguely familiar with? You, you can speak, speak anything in that secular institution of learning except Jesus Christ. Don't you dare mention Jesus Christ in the classroom. And why is that? Because it is so threatening 
so threatening. You can have any kind of public gathering you want. You can pray in the name of any God you want. Except Jesus Christ. Just try to speak in the name of Jesus Christ in the public square and see if there isn't an outrage. It's been this way for a long time. I don't know why we're so surprised. From the very beginning, it's been this way. People are threatened by the name of Jesus Christ. And often we react, what what are we doing? We're not doing anything. We're we're just trying to help people, minister to people. Because our our hearts are grieved. But do it in the name of Jesus Christ and, and people don't like it. Don't speak in the name of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. When, when someone's upset or they're angry, I'm talking about unbelievers, they're upset, they're angry, and they want to curse, they want to swear, whose name do they want to use? The name of God, right? I, I've never once heard someone say, Buddha, damn it. Never. Never, never heard that in my life. And you know why? There's just no oomph to it, is there? There's just no oomph to that. Yeah. Buddha, damn it. You don't have the oomph. But use God's name, and all of a sudden, ooh, all of a sudden there's a little more oomph to it. Or use the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word, and all of a sudden there's a little more power to it. And it's amazing that people don't want to use God's name or the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in worship or adoration. We'll use God's name. We'll use our Savior's name to swear. Now, why His name? It, it's not like they don't have other options, right? Plenty of other religions. There, there are a hundred different religions. There, there are so many different saviors and prophets and religious leaders out there, gurus out there, whatever you want to call them. So out of all the variety of gods and religious, why the name of God or Jesus Christ? Why do they have to use our God's name? Why do they have to take the name of our Savior in vain? You know why? Deep down, they know. They know. There's power in that name even if they're going to misuse the power in that name. They, they know there's power in that name. And maybe sometime we, if we have some guts, maybe we should confront them. You know, he was pulling aside. I, you know, I got a question. You know, you, you know, construction site, you know, you hit, you hit your thumb with a hammer. I, I noticed you used the name of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm just curious. Why, why didn't you use the name of Buddha? Why, why did you pick Jesus? I, I didn't even think you were a religious person. <laughs> I'm a religious guy. I'm the one that's always using the name of Jesus. I'm wondering why today you're you're using His name. Might be interesting to see the response, right? And of course, it'd take a lot of guts for us to do that, right? But maybe God would give us the guts on some occasion. But there is power in the name of Jesus Christ and people are threatened by Jesus Christ because they understand the implications. They understand that their whole life would have to change. If they worship Jesus Christ, they know it. They would have to change things and they don't want to do that. Well, Peter and John, they answer, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you 
rather than to God, you must judge. Other translations say, whether we should obey God or man, why, why don't you guys go ahead and judge? And again, I, I like how they're turning this whole thing around. Peter and John are on trial, but they're turning around right here, aren't they? You know what? You, you judge. We've we got a question for you. We've got a question for you. You judge, fellas. Who should we obey? God rather than... You tell us. Who, who should we obey? God or man? And they, and they make it very clear. And again, we, we see the wisdom of God helping them and guiding them as they're on trial. And basically, they're saying, you know what? We're going to continue to engage in civil disobedience because we answer to a higher calling. We must obey God who is up here rather than man. And when the laws of God and the laws of man clash, we have to obey God rather than man. Sorry, we cannot help but what we have seen and heard. In other words, they're being very clear. We're going to continue right on proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. You're not going to stop. Sorry. And at this point, we need to be clear that there is a higher law. Which means there are times when we cannot just obey the government. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about submission. We are to submit to the governing authorities. and Employees are to submit to employers. Children to parents. Wives to husbands. The Bible has a lot to say about submission. But there's a time when submission crosses the line. Where you cannot obey. Some of you will recall after World War II, the Nuremberg Trials. And many of the top-ranking soldiers in Hitler's army were put on trial. And one after another, their defense was, as they were on trial... I was just following orders. And they were found guilty of just following orders because those orders led to genocide. And they were not to follow those orders. They were not to be submissive. They were to rebel against those orders. And, and this is where it gets difficult sometimes. Also during World War II, some of you may recall the story. I, I forget which member of the, uh, the Corey Tem Boone family it was, but they were hiding Jews in their home. And at their, their, they had a kitchen table, and then they had a, under the kitchen table, they had, they had the flooring, and they hid Jews under the flooring, under the kitchen table. And the Jews came, or the, excuse me, the Nazis came in on one occasion, basically raided their house, and asked them, um, are you hiding Jews in this home? And one of the relatives thought you always had to be honest before God. And one, one of the relatives or family members said, yes, we are. And they said, where are you hiding them? And she said, under the kitchen table. And when they went to look under the kitchen table, she started to laugh as though she was mocking them. Well, she thought you have to be absolutely honest, even when talking to your enemy. Uh, but let's be truthful. She, she's just playing games. By laughing, what was she doing? Deliberately deceiving them to lead them in another direction, which is a form of lying. Um, so let's, there, are, there are times uh, when we can disobey the authorities and lie straight to their face. This is a matter of war. I would have just said, 
Jews, absolutely. We would never do that. That's, that's against the law. I'd create some big old fat lie. And I'd be proud of it. Just like Rahab was proud of the lie that she told when she hid the spies and said, oh, they went in that direction. And James tells us that she was justified for what she did. What did she do? She lied. Um. <laughs> I cannot tell the truth. Or, excuse me, I cannot tell a lie. Please shut off the phone. No. <laughs> um. But this, this gets difficult sometimes. These ethical dimensions, um, these ethical dilemmas that are before us, which means we have to be very clear on what God requires. Um, we have to know what He commands and what He forbids. So when that difficult situations come up, we know very clearly this is right, this is wrong. Um, so we need to remember sometimes um, we need to submit, sometimes we need to rebel. And I think we need to get ready because I think in our society could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. I think we're going to be challenged in this area more and more and more. And we're going to have to be very clear. Yes, I can obey you when you tell me to put my seatbelt on. Um, even though I don't like to put my seatbelt on, but that's, that's the law. But if you come into the church and you tell me that as a pastor there's anything in this book that I can't address because it's politically incorrect or consider hate speech by you, sorry, sorry, I have to obey God and I'm going to continue to preach it. Even if you make a law against it. Because ultimately, we all answer before God, including the governing authorities. So, verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they tried to threaten them one more time, they let them go, finding no way to punish them at this time. And notice, there's only one reason why they didn't punish them. Because of the people. For they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. In other words, reading between the lines, they wanted to punish the apostles. They wanted to do more than just threaten them. They wanted to punish them, perhaps flog them so that they would stop this shameful preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. But because all the people were so excited and praising God because of the miracle, they couldn't do it. Because then all the people would come against them. So they were stifled on this occasion. They had nothing to do but let Peter and John go with a warning. Now, in conclusion, let's just ask one question. How were Peter and John able to be so bold on this occasion? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We're told very clearly that the Holy Spirit filled Peter. Also notice something else at the end of verse 13. I skipped over this earlier. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? So, they're, they're astonished by their boldness and their sound answers. And they recognize that they had been with Jesus. Now, what does that mean? A couple of possibilities. It could mean they recognize that these men were disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. That's a possibility. I don't think, that's, I don't think the religious leaders were saying, hey, wait a second. Peter and John, they're... 
They're a part of the twelve. I think they already knew that. They knew that a lot earlier than this occasion. So I don't think that's what is meant here. They recognize that they were disciples of Christ. I think what's what's, uh, meant here when it says they recognize that they had been with Jesus, I think what they're saying is they recognize that they had spent time with Jesus in His ministry and He rubbed off on them. They're bold just like Jesus. They have wisdom from above just like Jesus. Jesus wasn't a trained rabbi. He didn't go to any of their rabbinical schools for training. He didn't go to any of their seminaries, receive any of their degrees. Yet he had an understanding of God's Word that was up here. And now we have Peter and John who have a boldness and who have this great understanding of the Bible and they're applying it to the religious leaders just like Jesus did. And they're recognizing these men have been with Jesus. That's where they got their guts from. Every student who is fully taught will be just like his teacher. They're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Which reminds us of how important it is to spend time with Jesus. I like what John Piper he writes. He says, The aroma of God will not linger on a person who does not linger in the presence of God. Isn't that good? It's as though the aroma of Jesus Christ lingered on Peter and John. And they recognized it. They had to deal with Jesus. Now they have to deal with Peter and John. Same kind of aroma. Same kind of effect. Richard Cecil said, the leading defect in Christian ministers is the want of devotional habit. And we could also say that the leading defect in Christian ministers in any arena, not only behind the pulpit, but in the pews, is want of devotional habit. Are we spending time with Jesus Christ? Are we honoring the Sabbath day, first of all? Are we gathering together every Lord's Day to come into God's presence with God's people? God commands us to come into His presence. God's presence is here. He promises to be here if we will meet with Him. Are we coming into God's presence each Lord's Day or each Lord's Week? And then we have to ask the question, are we gathering before our Lord every day Are we taking time out of our day to open up our Bibles? To read it? To spend time in prayer? Because we need God's help every single day. This this kind of boldness comes from somewhere. It comes from spending time with Jesus Christ. It comes from a commitment to live how God wants us to live regardless of the opposition. And perhaps you and I are not as bold as we could be because we're not spending as much time with Jesus as we should be. We need to be with Christ. Even if people don't recognize that we're with Jesus Christ, if they knew why we were bold, they would be saying, He's been spending time with Christ. He's God-centered. He's man-centered. He has in mind the things of God, not the things of man. He's seeking God's kingdom first. They might not be saying that. But Lord willing, they could at least see it in our lives, even if they couldn't put their finger out and describe why we are the way we are. But we will only 
live this way with God's help. We need God's help. Our flesh is so weak. But the Spirit can empower us even in our weakness. Let's close the prayer. Father, we thank You for the wonderful example of Peter and John and their boldness and what they did. Father, may we remember as we go through the book of Acts that we are not only seeing the Acts of the Apostles, but we're seeing the Acts of the Apostles as filled by the Holy Spirit. And Father, may we remember that we have acts that You want us to perform. Father, we have ministry to accomplish. Father, strengthen us so that we can do our parts in our generation and in our context. Father, help us to be bold. Strengthen us to do what You're calling each one of us to do. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.